you have your Bibles, we're going to turn uh, back to Titus. We've been thinking about different aspects of church, church membership for the last, I don't know, two or three, four Sundays in some uh, variation or another. And um, so I want to give us a, um, one more message here as just a, a reminder and also a um, just a big picture, making sure we're keeping the big picture in mind as we think about what it means to be a church, to function as a church, and what it is we've been called to, but also the um, the nuances that go into actually living this out. Um, I will say, just as a I guess a little preview, we're we're if you haven't gotten, and I think most of you have, if you haven't gotten your your new church directory yet, um, it's on the four year table, and inside of the church directory. There's a copy of the Articles of Faith and there's a copy of the um, uh, the Church Covenant. And so I plan in the very near future to do some overview messages of both of those uh, Articles of Faith, Church Covenant, and um, and then do something with those. And we'll, we'll talk about that as the uh, as the time comes. But you might be reviewing those, looking over those. Um, this time of year is always uh, a time that I in July that I typically take a break from whatever we're doing expositorily through books just because of the um, the other uh, roles and responsibilities and, and things that I'm preparing for. So I'm thankful for a little window to, to be able to address some things here and encourage us, remind us of some things. So the message is, um, is again, it's an overview of Titus. So we, we looked at a couple of weeks ago the blessing of church membership, and then we looked at the responsibility of church membership. And as you read through these pastoral epistles, which uh, essentially Paul is telling Timothy, telling Titus, uh, what they ought to be uh, paying attention to, what they ought to be focusing on. And several years ago, as we went through Titus, we, we really looked down in the details of that. But in an overview fashion, Titus helps us as we think about what it means to, to aim uh, for being the ideal church while we are loving the church that we have. Sometimes we can get a picture of what we think church ought to be in our minds and grow very discontent with what it is we actually have. There are times where that can be uh, a reasonable thing, but there are often times where, where it's not. We forget some realities. Um, we forget what we've been called to and and how the church is really supposed to supposed to function. Uh, so here's just the here's the the thing we have to always keep in mind. The church, okay, I'm talking about us, okay? We assemble in any age will never fully arrive until Christ comes back. Okay, so if 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 we're looking for thinking about the ideal church that's checking off all the boxes and doing all the right things and functioning in all the right ways. And by that, I'm not talking about uh, churches who turn a blind eye to very clear, revealed truth in Scripture. I'm talking about churches who are striving to take the model that's laid out in Titus 1, 2, and 3 and implement that, but they're just not hitting it all the way. Um. You know, functioning together and striving to 
live up to this standard that's laid out for us in Scripture is, is difficult. Primarily, it's difficult because it's contingent on a bunch of people cooperating. Uh, the materials that Christ is using to build His church, uh, He ain't working with much, is He? Uh, we're, we're lacking in so many areas. We're stubborn in so many areas. We're clumsy in so many areas. We're fearful in so many areas, and we could go on and on and on. You've, you've heard this before, but I always like to throw this out when I'm thinking about the church as far as uh, unity or the church as a whole, but uh, this reality really, whoever wrote this, it's, uh, it really is true, and it's, it's humorous, but uh, it's uh, went up above with those that we love, that will be glory, but here below with those that we know, that's a different story. Um, and it's just this idea that we can... We can get disillusioned sometimes because we are looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are looking forward to the day when we all assemble at the feet of Christ. And that will be glorious. Uh, but sometimes we can look around at, you know, the folks that we know, the folks that we're trying to do this with here, and it doesn't even resemble it. Um, well, here's the truth that we have to keep in mind. And again, this is not a turn a blind eye to things that actually need to be addressed and actually need to be changed. This is a uh, just a recognition and a reality that you know every single person in this room, every single person that you know, we are all imbalanced people. All of us tend to lean a little further one way than another. Uh, we're wired differently. We have different personalities that are neutral. Now, how we use those can be good or bad, but we all see things and emphasize things and and in different uh, intensities and capacities, and and so that's 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 what we're working with. Um, but based on the Book of Titus, as we think about it as a whole. There are three realities that ought to be ongoing in the life of a faithful church. And so sometimes it's helpful to kind of zoom back a little bit and get a bird's eye view of what it is we're supposed to be doing so that whenever we start to look at the details, when we start to look and, and, and maybe critique some of the, the finer points, it can help put those in perspective. So three things, three realities, three areas that we ought to be growing and tending to as the church exists. Number one, raising up elders. Raising up elders is the very first thing that Paul tells Titus whenever he, um, whenever he begins this letter. Um, he says in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting or lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. And then he goes through and 
lays out the qualification of elders and talks about the uh, the charge of what elders are supposed to be doing. But um, as we think about what it means to aim for being the ideal church, one of the things that we ought to be praying for, one of the things that we ought to be giving our time and attention to is seeking to do what we can on our end to raise up elders. It's going to require some time. It's going to require some wisdom. It's going to require some some observation on our end. You know, and I'm thankful for the past several years, uh, we've had men who are willing to, to take the pulpit, men who are willing to bring messages, men who are willing to minister even outside of the pulpit. But this is something that we ought to be thinking about, something we ought to be praying about, something we ought to be trying to discern. But it's also something, and, and this is altogether different than what I've, any of the things I just said, it's also something we ought to be trying to facilitate. Okay, what I mean by that is we ought to be encouraging uh, young men to test and see whether or not the Lord might use them to be an elder, a minister in His church. We've talked about this before whenever we're talking about gifts and young men, you ought to be listening and thinking about this. You may be sitting there right now thinking, that's not my thing. There's no way I could never do that. Well, you know, you have no idea how the Lord's gifted you until you actually try to use the gift. Sometimes we can get so mystical about gifts and think that they're, um, you know, that the Lord gives us this magic lightning bolt that we're struck with and all of a sudden we pop up and realize what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be doing it, and it goes, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly used. That's not really the biblical model there. The Holy Spirit has given you the grace. Christ has measured out the amount for what He has called you to do and the gifting for what He's called you to do. But the truth is we don't really discern what those gifts are, and we certainly can't begin to develop those gifts until we've actually tested to see where we might be gifted to serve. And that's the, really, that's the main point. It's to serve the church. Some of you, the Lord, hopefully, will raise up to be elders. Some of you, hopefully, the Lord will raise up to uh, fill Brother Robert, Brother Aaron's shoes, um, Caleb's too young to talk about filling his shoes, but he helps out with the song leading. But 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 some of you, the Lord will will hopefully raise up and and use in that capacity. But sometimes, and this is where we can think about imbalances. Sometimes the church can just be either too rigid in this area. What I mean by that is the church can let a personality conflict get in the way of acknowledging a gift that God has given. Sometimes the church can be lazy in this area. And that is just, I've said this before, but given absolutely zero attention to the raising up of elders until the solo pastor dies or moves away. And so you don't really give any time, attention, thought to who are we going to get to fill the pulpit because we've already got somebody filling the pulpit. Well, God's design for the church is not that you have one man who can carry the whole load. God's design is for elders in the plural 
in every city here, which would mean in every church. And so we shouldn't take a lazy approach to that. And to go along with lazy, it's just kind of inactive, inactive in this area altogether. Sometimes we can look around and say, well, we know plenty of churches that don't have even one pastor. We're thankful for the one that we have. Well, that's great, but that's kind of like saying it's better to have one eye than no eyes at all. Well, it'd be better if we had two, wouldn't it? Uh, just because we're not limping doesn't mean we can't be growing. And so we want to give time and attention to praying, discerning. I'm thankful for the afternoon services whenever we have um, Robert and Reed and Caleb um, uh, speaking and bringing messages. Um, I, I, I hope that as the time goes on, we'll add more to that. That more of you men will be willing to, uh, particularly you young men, to consider whether or not the Lord may have gifted you to serve the church in that way. But this is something that we must be involved in. Number two, when we think about raising up elders and what God's called the church to, you know, the ongoing work of a pastor. Okay, we're thinking about pastoral roles now. Out of Titus 1.9, he's to hold fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So the ongoing work of the pastor is to, to disciple and protect the flock through encouragement and through rebuke. Now, we said earlier that you can be imbalanced. That says churches as a whole, also as individuals. Okay, so some people, pastors, me included, can tend to lean or emphasize one of these areas over the other. So you ought to be receiving regular, regular encouragement and regular rebuke. Okay, that's just the job description. That's what the pastor is supposed to be doing. The pastor is not a cheerleader. Okay? My job is not to, or anybody's job, is not to get up and fill you full of fluff and try to give you positive thoughts about yourself. That's just not it. Encourage, yes. Okay? Where we're, where we're uh, growing and where there's strength and, 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 and where we're to be commended, I'm to be trying to stir that up and encourage and point that out where the Spirit is moving and growing. But as we said earlier, the church is never going to fully grow to full maturity in this lifetime. And so there has to be some rebuke. Okay, there has to be times where um, there are... Um, deficiencies that are pointed out. There has to be times where there are areas of growth that need to be addressed. There, there has to be times where we're looking at um, what Scripture lays out and where we are, and that gap has to be at least nudged a little closer or filled a little closer to the ideal. And so that's going to require me or anyone else who would be a faithful pastor, uh, to bring up some areas that need to be strengthened, that need to be addressed. Now, just as pastors have various imbalances, the individuals in the congregation do too. 
You know, there are some who wish uh, every sermon was one big rebuke. You know, they just love it. Not primarily for themselves. They're thinking about all the other people who aren't doing what they're, you know. And then there are some who just love encouragement. Uh, just just the uh, positive reinforcement. Uh, so you're dealing with this scenario where God has called an imbalanced man to preach to an imbalanced congregation. You figure somebody might get upset. Somebody might get critical. Somebody might get cynical. Well, if we're not striving to walk in the Spirit and to walk with the Lord, that's, that's just a guarantee. You got an imperfect individual trying to minister to imperfect people. And then as we continue to move, we're going to see we've got an imperfect members trying to build one another up. Well, the church, if that's the case, is a ripe setting for hurt feelings, bitterness, cynicism, coldness, and gossip. It just makes sense. Unless you have a group of people who are seeking to walk in the Spirit, to deny themselves, to edify their brothers and sisters, to forgive one another, and to walk in unity with one another for the glory of Christ. That's not easy, is it? So you have an imbalanced pastor seeking to shepherd imbalanced people. Trying to raise up elders. Trying to disciple. Third, you think about the ongoing work. Ongoing work of the church out of Matthew 28. You've heard me say this many times. Is to evangelize and to disciple converts to spiritual maturity. That's what Titus chapter 2 is all about. And to maintain a good witness for Christ. That's what chapter 3 is all about. So there's never going to be a time in this church's history before Christ returns that this will never be or that where this will not be a necessity. It will always be necessary that we are involved in maturing saints. It will always be necessary that we are involved in evangelizing unbelievers. Um, and so that means, as we've said in past messages, as far as discipleship is going, well, and evangelism, is that this is a this is a whole body exercise. Um, you've been gifted, Ephesians chapter four, verse seven, with a particular gift that's meant to build the whole body up. And so Titus two, the aged men, the older men, are to strive to reach a particular level of spiritual maturity, and then help the younger men do the same thing. And the older women are to seek to reach a particular role and level of spiritual maturity so they can help the younger women do the same. And this is messy work as we try to interact with one another. We were uh, yesterday at, at um, 
Tyler at the at the uh, youth conference. One of the uh, questions I got in a panel discussion uh, about this very thing is how do we do it? And and the answer that I had is I'm I'm sure I've given it here before, but it's by being intentional. Young folks, you're going to always need someone older to be pouring into you, to be discipling you, to be uh, helping you in your growth. And, and young folks, you ought to seek that out. And then older folks, if we're going to be what God has called us to be, we're going to always need to be attentive and giving attention to the coming generation, the younger folks. And so we ought to be seeking that out. But the problem is, is that a lot of times the older folks think, well, they don't want to hear from me. And the younger folks think, I don't have anything to say to them. I don't know how to interact with them. They don't really want to hear anything from me. And so they just, we just kind of go our separate ways and jump into our separate clusters. And, and that interaction doesn't take place. Well, if the church is going to function the way that God has called us to function, where this older generation is pouring into the younger generation, both have to pursue it. Um, and it has to be intentional. So, again, this is uh, more of an art than a science, if I could say it that way. What I mean by that is there aren't three clear-cut points that help make this happen. Uh, you determine that you're going to take the first step and trust that God's going to help you make it through the messy, awkward, whatever's that, that, that ensues after that. You know, it's easy for churches to expect uh, that converts will just kind of mature themselves. Sometimes people can take this same kind of parenting style where they feel like, uh, you know, their kids are just going to figure it out. Uh, they're just going to parent themselves and somehow come to the realization of certain facts. Well, that's just not the case. Matter of fact, you can look at the uh, uh, large generation of, of uh, young adults whose parents have taken that approach, and you can kind of see where that ends. We've got to be. We've got to be serious about the responsibility that God has given us to love one another by interacting with one another and intentionally pouring into one another spiritually. According to Matthew 22, and this is kind of what frames the whole thing, if you, can, if you want to turn there, you're, you're familiar here, but Matthew 22. And again, this morning, this is a, it's more of an encouragement of things we need to be keeping in mind. This is not a way for me to try to address one specific thing through a sermon. It's just a reminder that this is the picture that Christ lays out for His church. Matthew 22, 36-40. Lawyer comes to Christ and says in verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law... Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we said that the church's two jobs are evangelism, discipleship out of Matthew 28. 
But the two overriding commitments, the two overriding priorities that really fuel that are laid out here. And that is, uh, Jesus says, the two things that you ought to be giving your time and attention to, the two priorities for the Christian life, is that number one, you're loving God. That is, you are active in a living relationship with the living God. You're taking His Word seriously. You're spending time with Him in prayer. You're seeking to um, prioritize and invest in His church and in His kingdom. You're loving God. And then secondly, you're loving people. Now, this can seem to be very, very basic, and, and it really is. Um, but you know, you can, I'm convinced, you can take a look at any church, um, and when you start to see problems and deficiencies creep in, fundamentally, it's a result of a neglect of one of these two things. Either the people have grown cold and indifferent toward God, or they are cold and indifferent toward people, which really is the second step after they've grown cold and indifferent toward God. And so you know what this is like if you've been around very long. You know what it's like to be in or know of a church that seemed to emphasize a great love for God, but really just kind of despised people. Okay, And this great love for God that is typically laid out in churches like this is really, a, most of the time, tends to come across as a, a legalistic, beating down with rules kind of a thing. If you would just do this, 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 this. It's almost like every sermon is designed to crush you. I can remember one time hearing a, a pastor and a guy that I love and respect, but who tends to at least come across this way. He was talking about a particular doctrine in Scripture and He said, when's the last time you took the time to do a brief Bible study on this doctrine? And he said, and in case you've done that, when's the last time you've read a booklet on this? And in case you've done that, when's the last time you've read a major work on this? And in case you've done that, when's the last time you wrote something on this? Okay, and it just kept going and going and going and going. And what was the point? The point is, you can't win. The point is, you are a sorry bunch. Okay, eventually we got to get over that. Now, are we in and of ourselves anything to glory in? No. But is the work of Christ in us something that ought to be acknowledged? Yes. Do you have to read a 600 volume, uh, a 600 page volume on a particular doctrine to be growing in an area? No. It's fine if you do that. 
But there are times where it seems like we use we can use the truth or some churches that tend to use the truth to just pummel people. Now, then you have the other side where you have a church that loves people but essentially ignores God. And what this is really called scripturally is just a it's a it's a church that prioritizes on the fear of man. Uh, we want to we want to fluff. We want to uh, pump you up. We want to make you feel uh, good about yourself. We want you to have a positive experience, so forth and so on. But there's real no, really no priority to to feed the flock the pure milk of the word. There's really no priority to people would come into contact with the realities of God's holiness, the realities of of uh, who God is, the realities of what God has revealed and 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 given us in scripture. There's no reverence. There's there's nothing like that. It's just meant to give you a good experience, or at least that's the emphasis. Well, you can see if our priorities are to love God and love neighbor or to love God and love people. Uh, we're not seeking to strike a balance there and holding both of those. We'll be one or the other. We'll be one or the other. So a love for God, a love for God. How does a church grow in love for God? How does a church uh, culture, how does a church even a uh, uh, Adopt or or take on a particular culture. Well, it's the you know it's the accumulation of the members. Really, there are some people that really do need to be rebuked and stirred up for having a non-existent relationship with God in Scripture. Okay, so if you're not regularly reading the Bible, all right, you do need to be prodded with the truth. Uh, you do need to be rebuked. There's no way that you're growing in a loving relationship with God if you're neglecting the Word and you're neglecting the spiritual disciplines that He's given you that go along with that. There are times where we do need to be prodded as far as our prayer life, as far as our attendance and assembling together and fellowship with the saints. There are times where that is the case, but but that's a means to an end. It's not that, that um, for example, whenever we talk about church attendance, it's not that we're hoping to have a full building so we could take a picture one day and put it on Facebook and say, praise the Lord, look how many numbers we have here. That's not it. It's that Jesus Christ has sovereignly and providentially placed each gift here for a purpose. And he means for each gift to, to um, be exercised within the full body until we all grow up into our head. It's not a numbers game. It's believing that Christ really is going to use the gifts the way he said he would to bring about maturity and growth within the church. But that doesn't work if each individual isn't loving God or at least prioritizing a love for God. So we think about 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul says, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, I want to make it my aim to please him. I want to make it my aim to please him. You know, that that really is the goal. 
And if a church and the church members and the church leadership isn't making it primarily and fundamentally their aim to please the Lord, um, things can get real bad real quick. Sometimes we can make it our goal just to kind of go along to get along, can't we? Sometimes pastors, and I'm not immune to this, sometimes pastors can get off on things that need to be addressed, but the congregation will not dare address the pastor. I'm talking about in private first, and if it needs to go further, it can. But they won't dare address the pastor in these areas because because they make it their aim to go along to get along. Yeah, that's a that's a spiral that ends in the death of a church. If if we make it our aim to please him, then then here's what's going to happen. The pastor, hopefully, is going to try to feed you the the word and 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 preach the word to you in such a way that it is good for you and glorifying to God. So ultimately. I'm the one who's going to have to give an account to God for my ministry. And so I want to minister and pastor in such a way that I'm first accountable to Him. Now, here's the other reality. If you see me deviating, then you need to make it your aim to please Him by seeking to address that. And let me say this again. There's nothing going on behind the scenes. Nobody's come up to me and said something needs to be addressed. None of that. I'm just telling you ahead of time. Okay, The pastor's part of the body. And, and if we're seeking to please him, then when we see something biblically that needs to be addressed, then we, we address it. Secondly, as far as a love for God goes, if we want to please him, out of John chapter 4 with Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, then we want to please Him in our worship. Okay, When we come together here, what we do is important corporately. We want to make sure that we're worshiping in a way that's pleasing and honoring to Him, that we're bringing um, uh, these sacrifices through Christ, the sacrifice of praise in a pleasing way through Christ. So how do we do that? John 4, 23 through 24 gives us two things. And and again, these are familiar to you. We worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, to worship in spirit, it means that we're worshiping from the heart. We've come here to actually do something. Um, We're not just routinely singing through the songs. We're not just buckling up for another hour of Bible talk. We're engaged. We're expecting the Lord to do something. We're expecting that in light of the message that God is sending me today, He's wanting me to change or grow in some area. We've shown up with our hearts in sincerity to give worship to God. And then secondly, it's in truth. Spirit and in truth. That means we're putting ourselves under the authority of biblical truth. You can come with all the sincerity that you want to come with, but unless that sincerity is placed under the authority of biblical truth, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't arrived. This is not what's pleasing to the Lord. You can can sincerely come up with all kinds of error. 
But God wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ as the Spirit applies the Word of God to our hearts and brings about that transformation. So we come sincerely, but we also come putting ourselves under the authority of biblical truth. How do we love, how do we express our love for God? Well, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. We talked about that this morning. It's this reality that we're trying to please him, not gain his favor, not make him like us, but we're, we're trying to please him or express love to him through obedience, through conforming our hearts and minds and lives to his word. It takes the whole body to do that. Okay. It takes the whole body to help us do that. It takes the gifts for encouragement, for rebuke, for um, comfort, for bearing up under uh, various trials and difficulties. But that's priority one. Number two is our love for people. Okay? We've got to love one another. Which means that we've got to fight not to put people on a performance-based relationship based on preferences. Okay. There is a sense or a reality that we are connected here. Our fellowship is based on this commitment, this reality that I'm committed to walking with Christ and, and uh, placing myself under the authority of Scripture so that I can grow up into Him and that you're doing the same thing. So... On that, we expect that out of each other. But as far as preferences go, that really is primarily what gets in the way of a church's love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter you all know. You could go, I'm not going to turn there and read that, but when we're talking about loving people, we're not talking necessarily primarily about having some sort of an affectionate feeling for people. We're talking about the business of being patient, of being kind, of being long-suffering, of being um, forbearing, of thinking the best, unless you have some reason not to. The whole list of things there in 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, when we look at 1 Corinthians 13 now, it's a, it's a nice poetic expression of love. Um, and that's fine and that's good. But all these fruits of love that are being described in 1 Corinthians 13, all of these are, are things that you exercise in times of irritation, in times of potential conflict. Okay, these aren't things that, that happen um, when everything's just going great. I've said this before, but just a reminder. There is really no such thing as what we call somebody who is naturally patient. Okay, that's not a real thing. You can be complacent and not let things bother you because you're just checked out and don't care. But patience is something that you exercise when you're irritated. Okay? So, 
you may say, I just don't understand how all these things that bother me don't bother you. And here's the magic answer. They don't care. And you do. That's not patience. That's complacence. So we're thinking about these expressions of love out of 1 Corinthians 13. It is assuming that things have gotten rocky, that you're being tempted, that something you care about is being trampled on. And that's where these things come into play. Not when everything's going great. So a love for people. Also, Proverbs uh, 20, verse 5. I will turn there. Proverbs 20, verse 5. It says counsel, or that that word could also be translated uh, purpose, thoughts, Desires, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now, what does it mean to love people? Well, we said 1 Corinthians 13. But you know, another way, another uh, necessity in loving people is that we have to work hard to understand each other. We have to work hard to understand people. Because if we're not careful, um, we will chalk people's quirks, differences up to uh, the worst possible scenario every single time. Now, this is a truth that you all know. It's just a reminder. We're all quirky. We all have quirks. You do, I do. And most of those quirks aren't sinful. They're just obnoxious. Okay, they're results of various preferences. They're results of you thinking about things different than I do. You know, the the idea that God has for the church is not that the church has one personality. It's that all the personalities work together so that the church is unified. Okay? Unified doesn't mean uniform. Unified doesn't mean everybody becomes an exact replica of the other. Unified means we're walking in the same direction. We're headed toward the same purpose and that we're motivated by the same goal. And so seeking to understand, seeking to understand people. You know, when we give this time and attention and, and it's, you know, it's uh, it is it's, it's hard work to understand folks. Some people think they have the gift of sizing people up in about four or five seconds and slapping a label on them. I promise you, you don't. You don't. You're not that smart. You're not that wise. Proverbs tells us a wise man will help draw out the deep counsels that are in a man's heart. 
not slap a superficial label on the man and pretend like he knows what they are before he figures them out. And so understanding why people are the way that they are, why they do some of the things that they that they do. Um, we can have this single lens approach to to viewing people and scripture does not have that lens. When you look at the book of Proverbs alone, Proverbs characterizes people in certain ways. And um, I'm thinking now about just the sinful characterizations. There are also righteous characterizations. But but in, in Proverbs, you can either be wise or a fool or simple or you have the angry man, you have the sluggard, you have the fearful. Well, those aren't the same. Those are different. And you would approach them differently. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 talks about those who are the unruly or feeble-minded or weak. Again, those are not the same. You would approach these differently and you would understand these individuals differently. We're going to love people. We have to seek to understand people and where they are, what these quirks are all about. But if we're not careful, we'll look through a single lens. There's two that tend to be pretty prominent. Lens number one is that everyone who's doing something that violates your preference, everyone is a hard-hearted rebel. They're a hard-hearted rebel. They're doing what they're doing. Their manifestations of immaturity or their manifestations of their quirkiness is all because they are hard-hearted. And they just need to be slapped upside the head with some good old-fashioned truth to bring them back into where they need to be. Okay, now the other side would be what we call the bless your heart lens. You know, if you tend to help people make excuses and justify sinful behavior, you never hold anybody accountable, you know, that might be you. Well, the biblical lens that we ought to be looking at people through is that we are men and women who live out of a heart that is pursuing something. We're also men and women who struggle with the flesh. We're men and women who sin and are sinned against. And we're also men and women that carry with us, whether we like it or not, years and years and years worth of influence and experience that has shaped us to really to the people that we are today. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a whole life history on somebody, but I am saying if you're only working out of one lens, that's not love. That's not love. You know, something I found over the years, and if you've been married very long, then you'll find this out if you haven't already. Your spouse has quirks, right? I have quirks. Abby has quirks. I have more than she does. But when we begin to understand some of those quirks, a lot of times those are the very things that become endearing to us about that individual. I've found that also to be the case in shepherding the church here. Now don't come ask me what your quirk is because I'm not going to tell you. But many of your quirks have made me love you more after understanding you. And it'll do the same for you if you take the time to understand the individuals 
that the Lord has placed here. So these two commitments, loving God, loving people, are really two guardrails that will keep us from falling off into ditches that we naturally turn to, t- tend to gravitate toward. So there's always a tension. And we've got to be pulling on both sides or maybe pushing toward the middle on both ends um, throughout our existence as the church. So we've got to be able to maintain zeal without developing a critical spirit. Okay, We've got to be zealous for holiness and for growth in the truth and for taking God and His Word seriously. But you know, there are some churches that really emphasize this and really uh, run toward this. And the, what the product of that is, is that they're cynical and critical of almost every human on the planet. That's not a biblical balance. We've got to be able to maintain zeal for truth, zeal for growth without developing a critical spirit. We've got to be able to pursue holiness without producing harshness. Because here's the reality again. We have immature people being brought to maturity. And as long as the church is in its current state before Christ comes back, that's always going to be the case. We cannot be upset that there are people that need to mature in particular areas. We all need to be, we all need to mature in areas and we can't be, we can't be picky and we can't zero out the ones that irritate us and be harsh toward those. So in some ways we could say it this way. If you see areas of maturity, areas in the church where maturity is lacking, You can get harsh about it, or you can get busy trying to help that, trying to speak into that, trying to come alongside someone and help them grow in that area. That's what love does. We've got to be patient without being complacent. We just talked about those two things. We've got to be patient with each other. Who produces growth? in each individual Christian. The Holy Spirit does. Right? I can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, The Trinity is filled. There are no job openings. Okay, God's not taking applications. And so we trust that He will complete the work that He started in every single one of His people. And so we water, and we sow, and we encourage, and we rebuke, but we've got to be patient as the Lord does His Word. We've got to be able to hold convictions without sacrificing kindness. Sometimes we can hold convictions and uh, things that are just non-negotiables, and every church needs to have that. Scriptural truth is a non-negotiable. But we can hold that conviction and be kind. A lot of times people can hold firm convictions 
that will lead them to cut off everybody and their mama because they take themselves too seriously. They forget that we're holding God's truth and God's preserving and using His truth to grow His people. Now, our job is to stand on it. Our job is to pass it on. But our job is not to become isolated grumps because other people aren't where we are. One of my favorite quotes from John Newton, he was talking to someone about this very thing, about people coming to uh, different convictions. and, And this is what he said. He said, it took me 20 years to get to where I am. The Lord has taken 20 years to bring me to the place to where I am right now in my doctrine and my convictions. Why should I think that one conversation should do that for somebody else? That's just not the way it works. So we've got to hold our convictions, but we also can't sacrifice kindness. A different way of saying that is we've got to have standards without being snooty about it. Just because we have standards doesn't make us inherently better than anyone else. We can't stick our nose up at other Christians because they're not where we are. This is another one, and this is, again, all these are tensions. We need to be reverent without being unbiblically rigid. So we need to be reverent. We need to do our best to uh, cultivate an atmosphere of reverence as we come and we uh, worship. This isn't a common thing we're doing. We're coming together to worship the living God. And so we want to try to not manufacture, but at least facilitate an atmosphere of reverence so that we can do what we're doing in the right spirit and in the right tone. So there are things that we can do to help facilitate that. Um, We can try to remove as many distractions as possible. We have a cry room for that. We have... uh, Sometimes there's other correction that needs to take place and we have a a fellowship hall and my office is used for that. But removing distractions from the sanctuary. Trying to minimize the getting up and getting down kind of stuff, you know, in service. I understand that sometimes kids can get antsy and Need a drink of water, need to go to the bathroom, whatever, but just try to minimize that. Same with adults, being mindful of that. But you know what being unbiblically rigid would look like? It would be like me trying to tell you that if you've got to use the bathroom during service, you better hold it till I'm done. Okay? There is no biblical justification for something like that. That's rigid. Um, it would be like trying to put a count on how much you can do of whatever. Now again, parents, you ought to be mindful if your child's getting up five times in a service and they don't have a bladder issue, they're probably not going to the bathroom every time. So 
You ought to be mindful of that sort of thing. But we can't be rigid about it. Okay. Lastly, we have to be committed to doctrinal accuracy without that leading to personal arrogance. Okay, we've got to be serious about truth. We'll talk about this a little more this afternoon, but the, the whole weekend at Tyler was devoted to truth and what is truth and handling truth and communicating truth and, and different things like that. And truth matters. But if we forget that this is God's truth, not my truth, which means God's truth understood should humble me, not puff me up in pride. If we forget that, then we'll think that just because we've come to an understanding of something, that we're really something. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? That people who believe that they've been brought from death to life and any light that they've been given as it relates to truth has come from the Holy Spirit could somehow be arrogant about that. But we can be. That's a tension we've got to hold. The church has to hold that in every age, in every season. And so as we do that, we have to do this, these tensions. We have to hold these tensions with joy and endurance as we seek to, in our age, okay, and in our turn as far as our time here, our stewardship of the church, as we seek to be what God has called us to be and do what He has called us to do. How do we do that sort of thing with joy and endurance? Well, number one, confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. While there is a sense in which this is our work, and it is, it's Christ's work primarily. He's the one who shed His blood. He's the one who, who providentially brought us here. He's the one who's dwelling in the midst. He's the one who is giving the increase. And he's the one who will one day gather his people together to be with him. Okay, he's committed to that work, Philippians 1.6. Titus 2, and I'm wrapping this up, Titus 2 would also have us, we looked at this on a Wednesday night or maybe it was a Sunday afternoon recently, would tell us that we've got to be confident in God's grace. Okay, it's the grace of God that opens up eyes and brings conviction. It's the, it's the grace of God that brings about transformation. It's the grace of God that stirs up hope in an individual's heart. It's the grace of God that we're depending on as we labor. As we're aiming to be the ideal church while seeking to love the one that we have, Brothers and sisters, we have to remember we are all in process and we are all, or maybe I should say it this way, we have all been given to one another in this process to be used by Christ to complete the work that He started in us. And so may God bless us not to be disillusioned by the realities that He's called us to as we seek to hit the ideal picture or target of the church of Jesus Christ together as we grow in maturity. Let's pray.
Father, we, uh, we thank You for, for Your Word. We thank You that You have revealed Yourself and You've revealed Your heart to us concerning Your people, concerning Your church, concerning Your glory. And Father, You've also revealed uh, Your providence to us. The fact that as we think about how Your Word relates to us here in this specific place, at this specific time, Lord, You've given us each other And You've done that for a purpose. And that purpose is Your glory as we seek to help bring one another to fuller and fuller maturity in Christ. I pray that You would give us a love for You. That we would actively be cultivating a heart and a relationship of love individually that would spill out in the corporate worship. And I also pray that you would give us a love for one another, that we would deny ourselves, that we would look past our preferences and our inhibitions and our insecurities, and that we would love one another the way that you've called us to. Father, we confess we can do none of this outside of your help. And so I pray that you would bless us with the power of your Spirit and that we would cooperate. In Jesus' name, amen.